My guest today is Professor Anusha Chari, who's Professor of Economics and Finance at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Her research is in the fields of macroeconomics, international finance, and empirical corporate finance. Welcome, Anusha. Thank you. It's good to see you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with perhaps one of your older papers, uh, Taper Tantrums, Quantitative Easing, Its Aftermath, and emerging market capital flows. You say this paper examines the spillover effects of US unconventional monetary policy on emerging market capital flows and asset prices. Um, you say that a term structure model estimates uh, show that US monetary policy shocks identified with high frequency treasury futures data represent revisions in expected short term yields and term premia especially during this unconventional monetary policy period. So the policy shocks exhibit sizable effects on US holdings of emerging market assets. So it, it is quite intuitive, uh, to, but to set the context, unconventional monetary policy, um, that is what you mean by quantitative easing? Um, yes, indeed. So um, the paper was written um, in sort of after uh, the global financial crisis. And what we saw was that during the global financial crisis, um, you know, initially there was, there were massive outflows of capital from emerging markets back into developed markets, particularly the US. And that was sort of more uh, to, you know, make good on margin calls and that kind of thing that were happening at, you know, in during the immediacy of the crisis as it was occurring. But very quickly, what we saw was that by about February 2009, um, you know, capital flows to emerging markets had resumed with great force, in fact. And, um, to the extent that at a certain point uh, following sort of in 2009, 2010, during that period, um, you know, the Brazilian president, Dilma Rousseff, she referred to it as a monetary tsunami, uh, which was, you know, capital was flowing in, gushing into emerging markets, uh, was fueling mm -hmm. inflation and was posing a lot of uh, constraints on emerging market central bankers as to what to do with these smaller financial systems that were being inundated with capital. Mm. Now, from an academic point of view, it becomes very difficult during that period to look at the impact of U.S. monetary policy on these emerging market uh, flows and returns, primarily because the um, interest rates had hit the zero lower bound. So you can't really put an interest rate variable, a zero on, you know, into your regression specification, for example. So we focused on what you're referring to as unconventional monetary policy, which was the large scale asset purchases uh, that the Fed was doing during that time and really set the stage, I think, for the kinds of unconventional policies the Fed could undertake during the COVID crisis, for example. So it's a sort of a simplistic way of understanding this inertia is, is it there is sort of free money in the developed markets. And perhaps because of the, the 2008 shock and the COVID shock, there is higher expectations of returns 
higher returns perhaps in emerging markets. And so money sort of rushing <laughs> from where it's available to where it could find some returns. Yeah, these were definitely what we call um, search for yield flows. Um, so if your um, assets are going to uh, return very low uh, yields in the US and you know when the treasury, you know the rates have sort of hit the low, zero lower bound, uh, we had two things going on, right? So rates in the US are very low. Um, the treasury had also purchased a lot of long duration assets. And so what that meant was this uh, risk premium on the long end fell, right? So the you know, duration risk was removed from the market. Um, and combined with that sort of falling risk premium, low interest rates or zero at the zero lower bound, uh, both combined um, to uh, you know, push these flows into emerging markets. And that's one of the reasons we used a term structure model because you can distinguish between the term premium versus the uh, short end yields. Yeah, so this integrated world economy, um, one country's monetary policy <laughs> uh, affects everybody, right? So uh, as you say, if these flows are really big, it creates a big dislocation, right, in this emerging markets. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Because you see the US and other developed markets, say Japan or Europe, um, even Australia, for example, um, they have very well-developed, deep financial markets, right? So money sloshes in and out of the US, but we don't really talk about it that much, you know? Whereas in smaller financial systems that don't necessarily have that depth or the breadth, um, you know, foreign investor portfolio flows have massive impacts, uh, you know, either when they go in or when they go out. So right now, you know, in the context of the Russian crisis, a lot of money is actually flowing out of uh, emerging markets, um, also in anticipation of rates normalization in the U.S. Yeah, it's just truly a tsunami. Um, and... So in some sense, when sometimes, you know, the people say fools rush in, <laughs> when everybody's rushing in, um, the expectations of return cannot be materialized, I would imagine. I mean, if you were going in and buying assets because there's free money available, what happens exposed? Um, you know, what are the returns that we actually see in these markets after this shock? Um, so you see in our study, what you find is that there are significant asset price impacts, right? And so the way that we can design our study is to see what happens to returns when the money comes in. And there are these sizable impacts on these returns when money comes in. And uh, conversely, there are sizable impacts on returns when the money flows out, right? So you said pools rush in, but you also don't, if money is flowing out, you don't necessarily want to be the last ones uh, left, you know, holding the baby. So there tends to be these, um, these sort of feedback effects or loops, right? Um, if prices start falling in emerging markets, investors start heading for the of heading for the doors. And then when other investors see that the prices are falling, um, you know, they start leaving as well. So you have these sort of reinforcing 
feedback loops which feed into uh, prices via these flows in out of out of emerging markets. You could see the opposite thing happening when money is flowing in. Yeah, so you have, you have a recent paper that's also sort of related: uh, global fund flows and emerging market tail risk. Mm -hmm. So global risk and risk aversion shocks have distinct distributional impacts on emerging market capital flows and returns. You say, in, in particular, there are salient consequences of global risk on and risk off shocks for tail risk in emerging markets. Uh, and you talk about here, open-end mutual fund trading provides a key mechanism linking shocks facing global investors to extreme capital flow and return realizations. So, so what's the mechanism there? I mean, uh, we, we can, you know, sort of at a very high level understand money going in and money coming out based on some expectations. But then, yeah, this open-end mutual fund, they have constraints, they have heuristics that they have to keep, Perhaps there is some sort of, uh, I think you talk about here, some sort of linking to benchmark. Mm -hmm. So all those things sort of um, create a big issue for this uh, for these markets, I would think, right? Yeah, so I think the overarching question um, that we try to address in this paper is, are index funds um, harmful for global financial stability, right? So I can walk you through a very simple way to think about this, right? So let's think about an open-end mutual fund um, and think about, you know, you have assets and liabilities. Um, and, um, you know, open-end mutual funds are a very low-cost vehicle for many of us to get exposure uh, to emerging markets and international exposure in general, right? So we have our our investments in our retirement accounts and so on. And now if you look at, you know, Vanguard or um, any of these, uh, uh, any of these uh, providers will have, um, you know, some sort of offering of international exposure. And in fact, Vanguard says that about 40% of their um, plans have um, some sort of emerging market exposure. Um, and this is very different from, say, 20 years ago when, you know, emerging market investing was considered very risky and you would get all of these uh, warnings, you know, be aware that you are, and, you know, including an asset class that will is, is exposed to risk and so on. But going back to this balance sheet, uh, let's think about the assets and liabilities, right, for an uh, for an, um, mutual fund that is investing in emerging markets. So on the liability side, we have our um, investor funds, right? So investors have subscriptions, um, and that is the investor capital that is invested with the fund. Um, and this is highly liquid, right? So you can have daily subscriptions and redemptions in response to something, any sort of shock that might impact global investor risk appetite. And this risk appetite is what, you know, the financial press, policymakers, and also loosely refer to risk on, risk off. Um, so if you have a risk on shock, you're more, um, you know, global investor risk appetite is willing to take on um, risk. And when it's risk off, they want the risk off their, off their portfolios. So on the asset side, we have, if we think about these funds, so on the liabilities, it's these investor investor um, uh, funds that have been invested with the, with the mutual fund. And on the liability side, they have two things that we can broadly think of. One is their investments in these emerging market assets, and the other is some sort of a cash buffer. 
right? Now, the cash buffer is very necessary because if there is any sort of shock, you want to be able to make good on- You mean on, on, the, on the asset side, right? On the asset side, okay. yes. Um, so, you know, you want to be able to make good on those subscriptions, uh, those redemptions as quickly as possible. Um, on the asset side, when we think about the emerging market assets, they tend to be on the equity side, they are somewhat illiquid, but on the bond side, they're very illiquid, right? So you're investing in these markets where um, liquidity may be a concern, right? So, uh, you know, you may not be able to redeem your uh, investment, um, you know, as soon as you want to, for example. So these cash buffers become, become sort of important. But the cash buffers also, there's a trade-off. Right. On the one hand, you can make good on these uh, liquidity demands that could arise. But on the other hand, there are a drag on performance. Right. So if you have cash earning some low yield, um, that's not going to be providing you with the returns that you were hoping for by investing in these higher um, return assets. Um, so this is where the benchmarking comes in, right? So a lot of these mutual fund um, managers, they are their performance, their pay for performance depends on some sort of benchmark. And so, you know, popular benchmarks for equity are say MSCI World, Morgan uh, Stanley Capital International's World Index, or JP Morgan's MB Index for emerging market bonds. Um, and these can be in US dollars or in local currency. Um, and so what happens is that if the mutual fund managers are benchmarking to these well-known indices, then their portfolio allocations mimic the weights that are in these indices. So a pool of money comes into the mutual fund um, and then the managers take it and allocate it uh, according to the weights that are given in these indices, right? And let's say those weights get rebalanced, then the fund managers also rebalance because um, in terms of performance, they are going to be judged on doing at least as good as the benchmark, if not better. Um, and so here the active versus passive funds become important because passive funds are just mechanically benchmarking to the index, whereas active funds have a little more discretion Although some would argue that even though these active funds, they earn sizable fees, they are closet indexers, right? Um, so we have, you know, so we have this heterogeneity in the investment space. Um, you know, you, you also have ETFs that are investing in emerging markets. Um, so once you have this asset liability position in your mind, let's see what happens when a, let's say an adverse global shock hits. Right. So let's say, um, you know, the Russia crisis happens um, all of a sudden, um, you know, the VIX index goes crazy and, you know, global investor risk appetite really falls in terms, especially in terms of exposure uh, to uh, these risky emerging markets, what are considered risky emerging markets. Um, and so what would happen there is that um, if there are redemptions, for example, from the mutual fund, then there's sort of going to be a mechanical rebalancing out of uh, the emerging markets. And that's going to be in line with trying to maintain those portfolio weights 
uh, to remain consistent with the index to which they are benchmarking. And I was just as I mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, so money flows out of the emerging market because the um, index mutual funds are pulling out. Um, returns uh, take a beating in the emerging market. Other investors see this, um, and then the redemptions can increase, and mm -hmm. this feedback loop can sort of happen, which leads to price pressures in emerging market uh, assets. Yeah, I was thinking, Nusha, now, is there a need for open end mutual funds anymore? Um, if they are indexing, if they're benchmarking, uh, presumably they have some alpha coming from some sort of selection process. But it seems like if the world is really just looking for diversification and emerging market exposure, you can get it through ETFs, couldn't you? I mean, what is the need for open end mutual funds anymore? Um, so, um, so the as far as the mutual funds are concerned, you know, it's it's sort of we make a distinction between passive index funds and active index funds, right? So, as you are mentioning, the active um, index funds are in active mutual funds are the places where you would expect to get more of an alpha, right? So, as far as the passive funds are concerned, you're just going to do as well as the as the uh, benchmark index, um, you know, you're not you're not going to get any, you know, further alpha. At least you don't expect to get a further alpha. So, as far as the active funds are concerned, uh, what you um, you know, the idea is that these managers have some sort of, um, you know, additional information, or they have a way to allocate um, the portfolio in a way that they can generate that positive alpha and be able to distinguish, right? Uh, distinguish between say an Argentina and a Peru versus Mexico and Chile and be able to take that country heterogeneity into account when they are making their investments. So as far as this, these active investing styles are concerned, you know, we still need the, uh, the mutual funds, but um, as far as the ETFs uh, are concerned, you know, they're sort of very similar, right? So um, the, to the closed end, uh, closed end indexing mutual funds space, and just the mechanics is a little bit different uh, when we consider subscriptions and redemptions. Yeah, this is not in your research, but I want to ask you, what is, what is the, have you, have you seen any sort of cross-sectional data in terms of alpha from active mutual funds, are they actually creating any positive alpha? Um, so in, in our data, unfortunately, we don't see that, right? So what we, what in fact, this is why I made the closet index comment, which is that um, the, um, first of all, one thing that surprised us was that we really thought that investor heterogeneity would play an important role, right? For the passive funds, we thought they would just be allocating according to the weights in the index. And for the active funds, we thought that they are going to have much more of a strategy and that the portfolio allocations themselves are going to be quite different. Um, but when we actually looked at the portfolio allocations of the two types of funds, we saw that the active funds are actually you know, allocating pretty much almost identically to the um, to the passive funds. There is one important distinction though, which is that 
when um, these global shocks hit, which tells us something about the investor pool, that there might be some heterogeneity in the investor pool um, that it goes for active investing versus passive investing. Um, because in the case of our, um, when we look at our global risk on risk off shocks, um, you see these massive reactions on the passive fund side, but pretty much almost no reaction on the active fund side, right? So at least in response to this global investor risk appetite that we're capturing, um, the uh, active funds are able to keep, you know, stay in. So they are not the ones who are, you know, rushing for the gates as soon as uh, something adverse happens. And that tells us that perhaps there is something distinct about the investors who are uh, willing to take these uh, positions with active uh, funds. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, the, um, in, in an active fund, you can imagine there's somebody at the wheel, mm -hmm. whether that person is really good at what, what he or she is doing is another question, but there's somebody mm -hmm. there. <laughs> mm -hmm. In the case of passive funds, you have to essentially take control of yourself because there's nobody at the wheel and it just it's just a heuristic that's going to allocate based on whatever whatever you see, right? Exactly. And and that is also like it's the mandate, right? So basically uh, you are allocating your weights uh, according to uh, to this index. That's what the benchmarking is all about. And um, in the face of uh, significant redemptions, you are going to pull out in line with those weights, right? And this is what it's also interesting is that this um, what what this research showed us is that this is what can mechanically generate um, cross market correlations, right? So if a certain pool of money is being pulled out of emerging markets, it's being done in um, in uh, line with the weights that are in the index. So if you're pulling out of Brazil, you're also pulling out of Chile, you're also pulling out of uh, out of Mexico and um, so, you know, the return correlations for all these markets would also increase in line with the um, mutual fund outflows. So the granularity of these of these data of actually being able to look at how these uh, allocations are changing provides some insight into what we, you know, used to consider myopic foreign investors who... Um, you know, leave at the first sign of trouble. So there seems to be something mechanical going on here in terms of fund benchmarking. Yeah, I think I think that's what you talk about in the paper. So if I'm a fund manager and uh, investing in BRIC countries, mm -hmm. and let's say there's a shock in India, mm -hmm. and there are a lot of redemptions, uh, I'm managing a pool of money. I have to pull money out, not just from India, but all the other countries that I'm investing in. So mm -hmm. it sort of links everything together, right? The shock gets transmitted mm -hmm. across mm -hmm. the whole system very quickly. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. So it's, you know, you can't just pull money just out of India because then that will throw the weights out of whack, right? Unless you have a situation like Russia, right? Where Russia just recently got dropped from the MSCI index. And in the past, there've just been a couple of occasions where this has happened. For example, during the Asian financial crisis, when Malaysia put 
uh, controls on capital outflows. So foreign capital got trapped in Malaysia. Um, that created a very risky situation and Malaysia dropped out of all buy lists, right? Um, and so, you know, but it was about 18 months to two years when they were re-included into the, into the index. Um, but that's exactly what's happening with Russia. Let's say, you know, Russia's weight goes to zero. Um, then all of a sudden, um, all these funds have no option that are benchmarking to the MSCI World Index have, have to necessarily make the weight on Russia equal to zero in their portfolio. Um, and, and that's the kind of, you know, the massive outflows, um, you know, if the, as and when the money can come out. Um, it's certainly not going in if the weight is zero. Yeah, Russia is sort of a unique situation. There is sort of a differential movement, significant differential movement, right? So presumably I can take money out of Russia. I mean, if I can get it <laughs> and put it somewhere else. Uh, but when there's a global shock, then you don't have any such luxury, right? You, you, you're essentially trying to get out. Uh, so that is the risk on, risk off trade. When, when, when mm -hmm. the risk is off, you're basically pulling out from everywhere simultaneously. Exactly. Yes, yes, absolutely. But I mean, I also think that, you know, okay, fine. We take Russia out of the index, it's zero. And then, you know, it could be business as usual in, in, um, in emerging markets, right? And you're absolutely right that this is a very unique shock. And, you know, I was talking to some of my colleagues who work on capital flows and, you know, this is the first time we've talked about sovereign debt defaults. We've talked about fiscal crises in emerging markets. We've talked about contagion during the Asian financial crisis. You know, we've talked about the Argentine crisis and, you know, how all of this impacts the geography of capital flows to emerging markets, we talk about, you know, we just talked about taper tantrums and unconventional monetary policy, QE, the money goes in, taper, the money comes out, you know, COVID initially money came out, then it went back in, now there's talk of rates normalization money is coming out. So this is, you know, kind of the more global, um, global risk on risk off shocks that we could talk about, or even country specific shocks, right? But what we were talking about was it was really, up until Russia happened in recent times, you know, I'm sure there are uh, examples from historical examples, but um, you know, it's, it's sort of geopolitical implications have taken on a huge role in, in sort of the international financial system and the steps that are take, being taken to um, shut Russia out or cut it out of the international uh, financial system and monetary order, right? Um, which is which is which is very unique because if we think about you know before 1990 or you know during the communist um, era, uh, these countries were essentially in autarky, right? The Soviet bloc was in autarky, um, and so they weren't you know connected to um, to the West or to the international financial system. But that's all changed. And Russia, you know, has become exposed to the international financial system, and this shock has meant that it it's it's sort of facing some repercussions. Yeah, it's interesting. Interesting policy question. Um, all these autarkies uh, might sort of 
go back and say, look what happened to us because we connected with the international <laughs> international system. It doesn't appear to be uh, appear to be beneficial. Uh, mm. But I also wonder, Adusha, there is some sort of a hysteresis in the shocks because we've been getting a lot of shocks, one after the other. And I wonder if people are sort of getting used to shocks. Uh, I can't quite remember, didn't long-term capital failed uh, because of a, a Russian default? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a little hazy on the details. Yeah, there, yeah. Was, there was, you know, there, be, I mean, I think the, the fundamental point is the world has become very interconnected, right? So um, there's this uh, interesting paper that I once read, which was when the Fed sneezes, who catches a cold, right? Um, and um, it's, it's just that notion of something happens, you know, a tree falls somewhere. <laughs> it's uh, felt across the globe. Yeah, so I want to go into another uh, sort of uh, related paper, in search of distress risk in emerging markets. You say the paper employs a noble multi-country data set of corporate defaults to develop a model of distress risk specific to emerging markets. The data suggests that global financial variables such as US interest rates and shifts in global liquidity at risk aversion have significant uh, predictive power for forecasting corporate distress risk in emerging markets. Yeah, this is a little bit complete duty for me. So, I mean, this goes back to this idea that everything is interconnected. And so you are never in an, on an island. <laughs> if you have a company somewhere, you are really exposed to a lot of interconnected risks. Mm -hmm. um, and something happens somewhere else and you could be in distress, right? So that's what the data is showing. Yes, absolutely. So this was a paper where we, we sort of, when we started writing it, um, we, first of all, you know, when you do research on emerging markets, a big constraint is data, right? So if you don't have good rich granular data, you, you might have lots of hypotheses you want to test, but the data is simply not there, right? Um, and so the more kind of this granular data has become available, um, we can sort of test, um, you know, we can go out there and see, well, what are the factors that drive distress risk in emerging markets? Um, and, you know, when we sort of did a literature review to see what's the evidence out there, what do we already know, um, what we saw was that not much had been written. And, uh, and the little that had been written, it was just taking, you know, U.S. bankruptcy model and applying the same model to the, uh, to the emerging market context, right? And so then when we, what we did was we said, okay, let's start off by doing that. And um, let's sort of see how that model performs. And you could see that compared to the model performance in the US or a developed market context, there was a lot of unexplained variation, right? So there was a lot, you know, wasn't these models weren't doing as well as predicting, because you're trying to forecast and you're trying to predict defaults and you're trying to predict uh, distress, you know, kind of put a number in that expectation of what is distress risk. And these models weren't doing so well. So then we decided, okay, well, what's missing, right? And then we went back to this notion of um, interconnectedness that these emerging markets, we know that from the capital flows um, evidence that 
these um, re asset returns in emerging markets are very impacted by global flows um, and so on. And, you know, if a lot of these companies are listed on emerging stock markets, they are being hit with these global risk on risk off shocks, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so we wanted to sort of quantify that and look at building in global variables uh, to see if that could explain distress risk in emerging markets and, and, and improve the forecasting ability of these models. And so once we introduced, and we also, you know, we, we have a companion paper where we also use some machine learning techniques to instead of just saying, let's just take the model from the US and apply it to the US, let, uh, to emerging markets, let's use some machine learning um, and try to see what are the variables that are the most salient uh, in an emerging market context. And in, in addition to sort of accounting and market variables that are traditionally used in these bankruptcy um, forecasting models, what we found is that the global variables um, you know, become very salient in the emerging market context. Yeah, I mean, it's very intuitive. And I was thinking initially that there are sort of two types of connectedness. One is in the real markets. So if you are supplying, you know, if, if you are in a sort of a supply chain for world um, production, that's a real market risk, a real market sort of shock, right? Then there's financial market. So this is money coming in and money going out uh, in large amounts. So these companies are sort of hit with two things simultaneously, right? And and that, that probably has some implications. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's been brought into sharp relief with the COVID crisis, right? Because before we could talk about, you know, there were, um, there was this interconnectedness of trade flows and financial flows that people would talk about. But if you think about the way that research is done, you know, you might include some trade variables into your uh, specification, you know, you take the current account into account or something like that, um, or the real exchange rate, right? When you're trying to explain how capital is flowing across the, across the globe. But generally, you know, there was this, um, there was this kind of disconnect between the way that trade economists were approaching trade flows and studying global value chains and, um, you know, how these supply chains are organized, how is production organized across borders. Um, and then it was sort of like the finance was layered on top of that, right? And how is capital flowing? And because, you know, one, one, one point I should make is that I have another older paper, which was looking at cross-border uh, mergers and acquisitions in emerging markets. And so there, the idea is that rather than thinking about greenfield investment, right? So foreign direct investment, the foreign company comes in, uh, they have to build everything from the ground up, the plant machinery, set everything up, uh, employ local uh, labor and, and set up the operations. But uh, particularly, you know, starting in the late 90s and uh, you know, all through the 2000s, uh, cross-border mergers and acquisitions have really uh, taken off. And so there it becomes this question of, you know, there's a financial flow, right? There's an acquisition, um, but that is buying a real plant or a real factory uh, or a real firm in, in, in another country. And that sort of connects, then the question becomes, 
what is driving these uh, acquisitions. And that's sort of a bridge between, um, you know, the trade flows and the financial flows, because often what we found in our, um, in our study of these cross-border mergers and acquisitions is that, you know, it, it becomes this make versus buy argument, right? Like, why would you make something in an emerging market if you could just outsource it and buy it as an input into the global uh, value chain? And that really has to do with the boundaries of the firm and being able to protect intellectual property and, and things like that and the institutional framework in the emerging market where you might have concerns that you will not be able to enforce intellectual property rights, for example. You know, that famous Mattel case where the paint came from, from some supplier outside. And um, so that is a way, the acquisition is a way to bring that foreign firm into the boundaries of the firm that's located in the US, um, creating that uh, value chain. But the way it happens is through a financial flow. Mm. You know, it's also thinking about you know some sort of optionality for this firm. So, uh, COVID nineteen is a good example. You know, all supply chain participants became very efficient, just in time manufacturing, just in time delivery. You take all flexibility out of the system. You really, you know, clearly fine tune it <laughs> to the extent that it, it's working beautifully. Mm -hmm. The problem with taking optionality out of it and flexibility out of it is that when you get a shock, it becomes very brutal. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I think that's what we saw in COVID-19, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I just agree with you 100%. Like, you know, there's no inventory, right? right. So, and so it's it, across industries, if you have no inventory, and, it, it, and as you said, it it works beautifully. It's It's highly efficient. Um, you know, I used to watch you know, when I ordered a, laptop computer and then I could track it on FedEx as it left China to go somewhere else <laughs> in East Asia and then you know two days later it was in in Raleigh and I was getting delivery um, and you could see that you could see the whole um, supply chain in operation um, but you know as soon as you have something breaks down uh, parts are not available and I think the COVID crisis is really you know it's been so heterogeneous in its impact um, you know, some countries have come back online, others are still offline, but, you know, if this if this finely calibrated value chain, as you said, becomes highly disrupted. Yeah, so I want to go into another uh, paper, uh, spillovers at the extremes, the macro prudential stance and vulnerability to the global financial cycle. So you say the effects of macro prudential policy on portfolio flows vary considerably across the global financial cycle. A, a tighter ex-ante macro prudential stance simplifies, oh, sorry, amplifies the impact of global risk shocks on bond and equity flows, increasing outflow significantly more during risk-off episodes and increasing inflow significantly more during risk-on episodes. This is a bit counterintuitive for me, Anusha. So, what, what do you mean by macroprudential policy to start with? So macroprudential policy is, you know, has really come into vogue, especially after the global financial crisis, which, as we know, was in the U.S. was, you know, driven by the housing sector, right? So once once you had the global financial crisis, there were a lot of regulations that were put into place as safeguards 
particularly for the banking system, right? So loan to value ratios is one example of a macroprudential policy that is targeted towards the housing sector. Um, and the main goal of these macroprudential policies is to prevent the buildup of leverage during good times, which then leads to crashes during bad times, right? So it's to moderate these boom bust cycles that we see in financial systems. Like, you know, everything is going gung ho, um, you know, it goes too far something happens, some bad shock happens, it collapses. And to kind of moderate both the good times and the, so that, you know, not to have too high highs so that the lows aren't as low as they, 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 they tend to be. Um, so to moderate the financial cycle, essentially by trying to uh, put in place regulations that will moderate leverage buildup, for example. In emerging markets, a lot of um, countries are not able to borrow in their own currencies. So they end up borrowing in foreign currencies, right? So now your assets might be in Indian rupees, but you've borrowed in US dollars and any sort of shock that hits um, that leads to a depreciation of a rupee immediately becomes an adverse balance sheet event for the companies that have borrowed in dollars because now you have to repay more rupees to make good on that same dollar loan. So macro-pro in, in a lot of countries that borrow in foreign currencies has been targeted towards foreign currency borrowing by banks, for example. Um, so these are examples of safeguards that have been put into place um, to sort of, um, to, to um, make the, the banking system more sound and less vulnerable to shocks. Right. And um, so the, you're absolutely right that what we find is counterintuitive because macroprudential policy, and I'm a huge fan of it for the banking sector, um, is, is designed to make the banking sector safer, right? And less subject to shocks and less subject to boom bust cycles. However, capital is fungible. So the moment you don't allow uh, mortgage backed loans, um, the financial system can turn to unsecured debt, right? Um, and the moment you don't allow foreign currency borrowing by domestic banks, uh, firms can turn to issuing foreign currency denominated bonds, right? So um, what we find is that while macroprudential policy um, makes the banking system um, safer, there are spillovers to other types of flows, namely portfolio flows. And we focus on the distributional impacts because if you just look at sort of the mean effect or the median effect, you may not capture what's going on. So what we really need is big shocks on either end uh, to kind of you know, have the data confess as to what's happening. Um, and what we see is that um, especially um, in response to these big risk on risk off shocks. So let's say that there are two countries. One has a tighter preemptive macro prudential policy stance. So ex ante, they have, a, they have tightened macro prudential policy to make the banking system sound, more sound. And then uh, you have a country that hasn't quite done it in that way. And you hit them with a shock, a, a global shock. And you see actually that 
the, uh, the countries with the tighter preemptive macroprudential policy stance um, experiences more volatility in terms of bond outflows, right? Um, so, um, you know, it's definitely moderated the leverage in the banking system, but it's made, it sort of tends to make countries, according to our, uh, you know, evidence, more vulnerable to uh, portfolio outflows in the form of bond and equity outflows. That's really interesting. So, is it correct to think about it this way? So just like we were talking about the supply chain, when you when you really fine tune things, you lose flexibility, you lose optionality, you become very rigid. It might be that this policy, macro prudential policies work in good times, but it actually makes the system very rigid. It cannot really take the shocks in anymore. Is that the right way to think about it? That's actually a great point that you brought up because our data set, you know, really provides uh, sort of um, fine detail about the data. So we can actually look at different types of policies, right? How did loan to value ratios do? How did uh, measures in foreign exchange borrowing do uh, in the context of these global risk shocks? And what we find is that the more generalized buffers, which are these counter cyclical capital buffers, right, where you save during good times and you know the capital requirements and so on. You're you're kind of you're kind of building these cyclical counter cyclical buffers in good times that can be used in bad times. Mm -hmm. So these more generalized uh, counter what's known as CCYB uh, counter cyclical uh, these buffers have during the COVID crisis they were could be completely relaxed. Right. So they have ex precisely that flexibility that you were talking about mm. um, that, you know, you can't suddenly change the loan to value ratios or, um, you know, those those specifically targeted um, uh, targeted policies are more inflexible. But when you have generalized buffers that are um, really they are providing a buffer and a cushion mm. uh, during uh, you build it up during good times and you can use it in bad times. Yeah, and they have to go positive and negative uh, in some mm -hmm. sense, right, for it to be effective. Exactly. And and we saw that, right? We saw it yeah. going positive. And as soon as the COVID crisis happened, you know, if you look at uh, the, the graphs in our papers, it's relaxed immediately. Yeah, I mean, those types of policies, I don't know much about this, Anusha, those, those types of policies, at least intuitively, it feels like would be more efficient than you know, sort of ad hoc stepping in and you know trying to trying to do something after the shock happened. Mm -hmm. If you have sort of a stabilizers built into the policy regime, mm -hmm. it, it would likely to be more efficient, I would think, right? Right, right, and that's the whole idea behind uh, the counter cyclicality of fiscal buffers, right? Um, that they they come into play during um, during. Uh, during recessions and so on so you know automatic stabilizers but you know that kind of notion of of uh of uh, flexibility uh that is conditional on the state of the economy yeah unfortunately shocks are going to be with us yeah absolutely so so you have a very recent paper the unholy trinity regulatory forbearance government-owned banks and zombie firms Mm -hmm. You say the paper examines the impact of asset 
quality forbearance to alleviate loans under temporary crisis-induced liquidity stress on the allocative uh, efficiency of credit. Mm -hmm. uh, the predominance of government-owned banks and an external crisis facilitate identification. Um, so if I understand this correctly, Anusha, the, the government-owned banks sort of keep firms on uh, life support alive in a, in a bad way, is that the, is that the mm -hmm. issue? Yes, yes. And, you know, when we wrote this paper, it was, it was, um, it refers to what happened in India during the global financial crisis. Uh, but, you know, during the COVID crisis, many governments around the world have, uh, you know, had some form of forbearance, right, uh, for borrowers um, and they households or firms. Uh, that, you know, all of a sudden you're not able to go to work and your income has taken a hit and, you know, you may not be able to make your mortgage payments or firms may not be able to service their loans and um, therefore forbearance is called for, right? So, the, you know, in theory, the rationale for forbearance is that if you have a temporary liquidity shock, right? You're not insolvent. You're just having liquidity problems. Uh, then to uh, give some form of relief to borrowers that will help them tide them over during this time of temporary liquidity. Um, and then they'll be, you know, given that they are solvent, you know, conditional on being solvent, once the liquidity crisis passes, then you can make good on your loan payments. And so in the case of India, um, what we see is that during the global financial crisis, and this is sort of coming full circle to trade disruptions, right? So there were a lot of Indian firms that were suppliers to, uh, were exporters, were supplying to firms outside of India that may have been hit adversely by the global financial crisis. And so the Central Bank of India, the RBI stepped in and they basically said that, okay, we're going to provide forbearance uh, to banks. And the idea being that if banks could say that a loan was under temporary liquidity stress, they would be given relief in terms of the capital provisioning, right? So if you have a loan in good standing, it has a certain kind of low pro capital provisioning rate. Uh, but if a loan starts missing interest or principal payments, then it be, it's starting to become a more risky loan. And therefore, the uh, safeguards that are in place in terms of loan loss provisioning or capital provisioning is that then the bank has to commit more and more capital against that, that risky loan being out there. So during the global financial crisis, what the RBI said was that if banks could say that this loan is under temporary liquidity stress, then they don't have to increase the capital provisioning. And they gave a special, um, you know, class. It was called a restructured assets. But the policy itself was quite opaque. You know, yeah. it didn't specify precisely what does a loan under temporary liquidity stress mean? What is liquidity stress? It didn't define liquidity stress. And we know that if we just look at accounting measures, it's notoriously difficult to distinguish between liquidity and solvency. Mm. So 
it just provided banks with this opportunity for regulatory arbitrage that you could just claim that a bunch of insolvent or you know, firms that were not being able to pay um, from before, you could just sort of put them in this liquidity stressed um, bucket and kick the can down the road. Um, and what that meant was that there was this huge buildup of stressed assets in the Indian banking system. And part of the problem is that if you're going to evergreen a bad loan, uh, which is a phenomenon knows it, known as extend and pretend, um, then you're essentially gambling for a resurrection, right? Somehow this zombie firm is going to <laughs> come rise up again. Um, and, um, and what's interesting is that given the predominance of government-owned banks in India, we are able to exploit that margin, right? So there's a different differential behavior the private banks were not engaging in this kind of zombie lending and um, restructuring assets on such a massive scale. Uh, whereas the government banks, you know, that might be subject to political economy constraints, had lent a lot to the infrastructure sector where loans were, you know, not performing. Um, you know, we can actually see that there's a very highly significantly differential response on the government side, which is related to uh, what some have called fiscal dominance, right? Because if, if, a, if a government bank goes belly up or is very close to going belly up, the sovereign has to step in and recapitalize it mm -hmm. because ultimately it's part of the sovereign's balance sheet, right? Um, and so in a sense, for this type of forbearance becomes an implicit subsidy from the sovereign that allows uh, the government to kick the can down the road. But then, you know, the chickens always come home to roost. And, you know, we, we've sort of seen these massive restructurings in the banking sector in India. Yeah, in some sense, it's a transfer between good firms and bad firms. And I, I, I remember, I think, in one of your papers, you talk about uh, previous default history mm -hmm. is highly predictive of future defaults. Mm -hmm. So in real markets, history is actually quite useful <laughs> from a predictive mm -hmm. perspective. In financial mm -hmm. market, it's not, it's a random walk. But in real markets, history is actually quite useful. And so if we are not using available information in making those decisions mm -hmm. and become sort of a handout, then you know, they, they, that's never going to really, really work, I would think. Yes, and actually this is sort of, it's more turning a blind eye, right? Uh, we know that things are going south, but we're just going to prop things up because bank recapitalization is going to be very costly. And it's going to, especially if you don't have fiscal space, right? It's all going to go in the government book, the government's books. So if you don't have the fiscal space on the government's books to do undertake this type of uh, recapitalization, it's, it's, you know, it's easier to, uh, to sort of try and turn a blind eye and ignore the problem for as long as possible. And forbearance becomes a means of providing, uh, providing that um, implicit subsidy. And that's one of the things we argue for in this paper that, you know, many countries around the world have implemented forbearance policies. And given that we find that these perverse effects of zombie firms getting credit 
and healthy firms being pushed out. And then we find the separating equilibrium where the kind of the unhealthy firms are matched with the government banks and the healthy firms have migrated to the private banks, right? Um, those sorts of allocative inefficiencies uh, are something to kind of kind of keep an eye on as countries kind of come back from COVID and, um, you know, these regulatory forbearance policies have to be rolled back. Yeah, it's everywhere. I think um, not just in emerging markets, but also developed markets, uh, mm -hmm. I would think. Um, the beauty of free markets is that it requires bad firms to go away or be recycled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, if if we are unable to do that, then, you know, we, we can't really make markets work, right? So uh, it has long-term implications, right? So I just want to finish up with uh, uh, your late, latest paper here. Does capital scarcity matter? Mm -hmm. You say standard welfare calculations indicate that to be indifferent between a benevolent social planner implementing capital account liberalization or not, the representative household would require a 44% increase in consumption to remain in autarky for five years after being presented with an option to opening up. So, um, so this is a country, let's say country X had sort of a central planning regime or socialist regime or something like that, and they're sort of opening up to the world economy. They could or they, they, they may not, but you're saying if they don't, uh, there is a sort of a consumption differential about 44%? Uh, yes, so what's interesting is that there's been this whole debate, right? It sort of centers around whether capital, free capital movement in the international financial system is beneficial for uh, capital poor countries, which is namely emerging markets, right? And, um, you know, when we talk about the central planner in these macroeconomic models, it's basically, you know, just have the policymaker, just think about the central planner as the policymaker. Um, and so the idea is that there is, it's a very controversial topic because, you know, on the one hand, when countries in financial autarky open up as they did in the 80s and 90s, a lot of these emerging markets came online, capital flowed to these countries, the cost of capital declines, real investment goes up, you know, we document some impacts on growth. At the same time, this capital is pretty, um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty, it can move freely, right? So any bad shock, it comes out. Um, so um, the debate in international finance has been that, you know, the kind of volatility that these open capital markets pose for these emerging markets, uh, that the welfare consequences, it's really not clear that these countries should be opening up. And so that's the question we ask in this paper. And what we find is that the modeling technique that a lot of papers that argue against open capital markets in the international system, they're using, uh, in their modeling, they're using an infinite horizon, right? So what happens in these uh, models theoretically is you open up, it you get this windfall of capital and the country catapults to the world uh, steady state as we call it. Um, but all of this action happens in sort of the first 20, 30 years of the model, right, of the, of the representative agent. 
Whereas if you calibrate the gains with your denominator being the infinite horizon consumption gain, you're taking the first 20, what happens in the first 20, 30 years before convergence, and you're dividing by a very, very big number. So you're basically, you know, getting a very small number as the welfare benefit of, uh, of opening up. And so we do this, you know, it's this consumption equivalent. You ask an agent, would you rather be in autarky or in openness? And then you compensate the agent to be in autarky. And we find this very large compensation mm. that would be needed in the early years. And our argument is that, you know, 20, 30 years or even five years, that's a policy relevant horizon. It's not the infinite horizon. And that's the kind of theoretical point that we were trying to make in this paper about why capital scarcity matters and how much it matters uh, for, for the welfare of households that live in, in capital scarce countries. And you know, once again, we're seeing that in Russia, capital scarcity matters. Just yeah, this is really interesting. There's a lot of policy implications. So this is not the research, but I want to ask you, um, you know, when I look at India and China, I, you know, I know that you have done a lot of work um, on emerging markets, including India. Uh, it seems to me that uh, there, there are two types of liberalization. Um, so the initial conditions for both of these countries may be 60, 78 years ago is approximately equal at 1,000 dollars per capita GDP. China is sitting at $10,000 per capita GDP and India is at $2,000 per capita GDP. Um, and you wouldn't imagine China to be, you know, this liberal free uh, uh, economy by any stretch of the imagination. So what differentiates these two countries? So I think, um, you know, the fact that India is a democracy matters, right? So democracies are, miss, uh, you know, they're messy. Whereas in China, they can have this control planned way of uh, developing the country um, and kind of have a, a vision of policy agenda uh, and implement the necessary reforms to, to bring China online in terms of delivering um, you know, goods and services becoming an export powerhouse and so on. Whereas in India, you know, the reforms have been, the initial reforms were quite big, but in, you know, after the balance of payments crisis of 1991, but following that, it's been very piecemeal. And, you know, there's a funny stories that somebody told about, you know, privatization of state-owned enterprises, for example, uh, where this uh, MP uh, as opposed to said, yes, I think privatization is an excellent idea. Just don't privatize the plant that's in my constituency. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you have to deal with the political economy of these reforms in a country like India. Um, and there are very small things that haven't changed. For example, you know, in India is labor abundant, just like China, but there are all these um, kind of restrictions on, you know, calling a firm that's over 100 uh, workers as a large firm. That's by no stretch of the imagination a large firm in the rest of East Asia. Um, but that means that all these formal uh, labor laws kick in, which would make it very difficult to, um, you know, you know, uh, sort of have the labor market flexibility. Um, and so you have this bunching at 99 or 49 workers where these laws kick in. And 
you're not able to take in the take the economies of scale into account. So you know those pictures of a thousand seamstresses in one big Chinese factory, you won't see those pictures from India. Um, so I would argue that you know the labor abundance is 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 not being taken advantage of. So so in conclusion, Anusha, so if you were to um, pick two three policies for India to get back on more on a Chinese footing, <laughs> let's say. Well, what would that be? What would be the two, three things that India needs to do? So I believe this: these firm size restrictions are really choking off manufacturing. I think it's, it's you know, it's this atypical transformation of India, uh, which is uh, labor abundant, and but the manufacturing is stagnating and you know, the services sector, which doesn't employ as many people is thriving and driving the growth is, is, you know, rather perverse. Um, and to, if so, you know, measures to get the manufacturing sector going, such as easing up on firm size restrictions, or, you know, these notions of special export zones where you don't have to fight about getting electricity and water and all the things that are necessary, you know, having harnessing the ports and and kind of making those sorts of a few examples of special export zones possible you know those are the kinds of reforms uh, that I think are necessary because you know agriculture is not as productive and you have you know uh, so many you know uh, huge fractions of the labor force underemployed in in agriculture and they're not being able to be pulled into manufacturing. And then the third thing I would talk about is educational reform, where you know everybody feels compelled to get this, you know, generic BA pass degree, which is not really equipping anyone to do anything when they are done. But you know, kind of perhaps um, adopting more of the German model where. Uh, there's an emphasis on vocational training and skills development where uh, people don't have to get a bachelor's degree. They can just get a vocational training certificate that then can be deployed in a variety of manufacturing industries. So those would be my two or three uh, reforms in my wish list for India. Yeah, I particularly like the third one, Anusha. I remember when I was growing up in South India, um, bus conductors had uh you know uh masters uh mm -hmm. and 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 so there's a sort of a policy question which is there's no point getting educated if there are no jobs for that education so to speak mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so i think we are missing sort of the planning education planning uh, appears to be missing in india right yeah it's, um, you know, I'm just sort of creative thinking, you know, uh, providing people with options, having tracks, right? You know, countries like Germany have done it. Um, and uh, it, there's no reason. We know from the services revolution that um, with a little bit of training, you know, India could really transform into a services uh, powerhouse. Um, and I think the same needs to happen on manufacturing uh, simply because of the numbers of people in the workforce. Yeah, I want to touch on one thing. That, so, you know, we talk a lot about artificial intelligence, robotics 
here now, there's a general sense that um, humans might be replaced by machines in routine jobs in the future. What, what are the implications of that for a large country like India with 1.4 billion people? Yeah, it's sort of, um, you know, it's 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 really interesting um, to see what will happen. What's interesting to me is that given uh, the um, issues with manufacturing laws in India, you'll be surprised to hear that this labor abundant country in auto manufacturing is using robots instead of people because, you know, you don't have to worry about laying off a robot. Um, and so it's already happening, right? Um, where, you know, your example of the bus conductor with the uh, master's degree, um, you have huge swaths of unemployed youth. And India has 150 million youth in this kind of um, college going age, and they're all going to be coming online because India does have uh, a very young, um, in terms of demographics, it's skewed towards being young, which can actually be a huge advantage, right? It can be a, it can be something, an asset that can be levered where other economies, including China, uh, our populations are aging. Um, and it's just going to be a matter of how is that harnessed? And, um, you know, I think, you know, robotics and artificial intelligence, I'm sure it can play a role in, in helping that to happen too. Excellent. Yeah, this is great, Anusha. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you for inviting me. This was a pleasure. Thank you.